Hello and welcome to another episode of Flying High with Flutter. I'm your host, Alan Wyma. Today, I am with Matt Carroll, also known as Super Declarative. He is the creator of Super Editor. And there's quite a big story to that, I believe. You were just telling me about it. So I'm go ahead and let you uh, kind of give a lowdown on that one. Sure. Well, Alan, thanks for having me. Excited to be here on this rapidly up-and-coming Flutter-based podcast. Uh, I have quite a bit of personal history with Flutter, actually. So I'll just give the audience that full rundown. And Alan, you can interrupt me at any time if you want to dig deeper into any of those details. But my story with Flutter uh, goes back probably over four years now. It was late 2017 when I first discovered Flutter and started working with it. And back then, uh, in the process of both learning how to use Flutter, but also proving out what Flutter could do, I worked on a video series called Flutter Challenges. Uh, I was kind of the first person in the space, actually, to come up with that term, Flutter Challenge. It's been adopted in many different ways since then for many different use cases, but it originated with that video series. And uh, Alan, I don't know when you first got involved with Flutter, but especially in those earlier years, 2017, 2018, there was a lot of skepticism around what Flutter could do. Could it really render at 60 FPS, making complex animated user interfaces with ease? And so I created that video series to actually kind of figure out, well, can we create these intricate animated user interfaces with a high frame rate and build them quickly and easily? So that video series, each video was actually real-time coding from a brand new Flutter project all the way through to a complete user interface. And they'd run one hour to three hours of me just sitting there typing away on the keyboard, showing every little step. Um, and, and those videos had great success, hundreds of thousands of views per video. A lot of people have credited those with actually getting them interested in Flutter and really understanding what it was about. But after probably half a dozen or so of those videos, I joined the Flutter team. I was actually a member of the Flutter team for a couple years. And while on the team, I worked primarily on the Android embedding for Flutter. So any Flutter developer who has recently used Flutter Activity, Flutter Fragment, Flutter View, Flutter Engine, the, the uh, Android plugin API for Flutter, those are all things that I worked on for a couple years while I was on the team. And after a couple years in the organization, I kind of came to the conclusion that honestly, I could probably accelerate Flutter adoption more from outside the organization than from inside. And so in early 2020, I left the organization to work on Flutter contract development, corporate training, Flutter consulting, open source work, the, you know, kind of the full gamut. That's what I've been doing for the last couple of years. And uh, a couple projects of note in that time, one thing I've done over the past year or so is I've ported processing to Flutter. We can talk more about that later if you'd like. But then also, as you've alluded to, um, I've created Super Editor. And Super Editor was this really great partnership between myself and a few companies, primarily a company called Superlist. So Superlist needed the ability to create rich text document style content with Flutter. And they brought me in to essentially lead an effort to build that as an open source package. Uh, so Superlist funded this effort. I brought my expertise and I've done the majority of the work on that package. And even in addition to Superlist, we've had companies Turtle and Clearful, who have each helped to fund specific areas of Super Editor along the way. So there's actually a growing number of companies that are helping to fund this effort. And for those wondering why I'm wearing this hilarious getup here today, uh, with the success of Super Editor, 
I decided to expand that effort and to create an open source remote development agency. So a software development agency that works exclusively on open source Flutter and Dart tools. And it is called the Flutter Bounty Hunters, which is why I'm wearing this amazing cowboy hat and tactical vest here today. And that kind of brings us into the present. So we can dig into any or all of those topics. Alan, I'll turn it over to you and you let me know what's of interest. Yeah, there's so many avenues to go down. Let me just kind of roll with whatever's in my heart. First question is, how did you assemble your outfit now that we're talking about the outfit? Because that's if people are actually watching this podcast, it, there seems to be. Well, let me let you say it, because I'm afraid I might say something that maybe you're not happy with. So how would you describe your outfit to, to people <laughs> who maybe are just listening to the podcast? Yeah, sure. So I'm I'm wearing a cowboy hat. I'm wearing fully reflective sunglasses. I'm wearing a kind of sweaterish turtleneck and a camo tactical vest. And how it came together, it's all just random. Uh, I just found some stuff online and put it together. It's kind of a, a little piece of all sorts of different identities. I said in a recent video, it's kind of like a, a redneck Batman. So, you know, if, if Batman grew up in Florida, this might be how he dresses with the fancy turtleneck and the uh, the hunting camo tactical vest. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. Like when I saw it, I was like, okay, this guy is a little bit of a character, but that's okay. <laughs> Everybody who's a character is... They bring something to the table, right? There's, you know, otherwise... You, you got to have fun with it. If you're not having fun, what are you doing? No, I agree. We all have fun in different ways. Just, uh, I, you know, as you see over here, I, I don't have... It's, it's hard for me to even get dressed in the morning, but maybe later I'll have my own little outfit. That might be a good idea. Yeah, it'd be much more difficult for you to put all this on, for sure. I'd have to have somebody help me out. It's what I, I can't put on my watch without somebody helping me out, so I guess I already have that kind of going for me. Um, yeah, so... This is kind of, you said the outfit's more so to go over to kind of rep your Flutter Bounty Hunters. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. This is me just having fun with the Flutter Bounty Hunters brand. Okay. But when you say Bounty Hunters, that means there's more than one of you. Is it just yourself right now? Or is there planning to have more people? Or do you actually have more people right now? Yeah, we've got a few people and I'm, I'm actively looking for more. So a number of people have sent me applications. Uh, so I just need to work through the process of vetting those applications and seeing what makes sense. Now, in the, the nature of the, the Flutter Bounty Hunters business is that it's going to be a situation where business goes up and down a lot because companies will come in, they'll need something, we'll build it. And then for a while, there won't be any companies that need anything. And so that means that the nature of the organization is that all the developers are contractors and I will kind of source them into a project as needed. We'll disband after that and then I'll source them again. Uh, so it's not, you know, no one's going to be there all the time, but it will be a team. The team will involve many different expertise and we'll that, that's where kind of the bounty hunters idea comes from is like you assemble the bounty hunters as you need them. And then when the work is done, you go back to your life until the next project comes around. But that could be quite difficult, right? Because I mean, there must be, do you have some kind of lead time that you're looking to do this with? Because you have to let people kind of prepare their schedules, right? Yeah. And that's, that's why you want to keep a bigger team than what you need at any time. So let's say there are 50 people who are vetted, all capable of doing the work. A project comes along, I'll put out a notice. I'll say, Hey, you know, all 50 of you are vetted bounty hunters. Which of you, if any, have the time and interest to work on this project will get the labor on the project and start going. Of course, if no one's available, then you, know, you can't work on that project or you can't do it at that time, but that's just the way of the world. Okay. Um, so what kind of projects do you think you guys would be working on? Like what kind of things do you think businesses will be sponsoring? Is it just open source projects similar to um, Super Editor or it could be things where you're actually building pieces onto the Flutter engine? What kind of things yeah. do you expect? It's a good question. So in terms of, of domain, anything and everything within Flutter and Dart is fair game. 
And if we need a certain special expertise, I'll go out there and I'll find it and we'll work on that. But it's all fair game. Now, you brought up the engine. And here's the interesting part there. I actually originally considered creating this organization focused on working on the Flutter project itself. Because, of course, there are plenty of things to fix in Flutter. There are plenty of things to extend. And I was on the team for two years. I understand the process. The fundamental problem, though, is that the Flutter organization has a veto on absolutely anything. So we can do all the work we want and we can get it in a PR. But if for any reason, a good reason or bad reason, anything in between, if the Flutter organization doesn't want to take in that code, we have zero recourse. And so it's one thing when you're doing that yourself personally. It's another thing when somebody's paying you to do that. And then you have to say, well, we tried. We took your money and we tried, but we can't, we can't merge it in. Uh, so if the Flutter org ever wants to work with me on that, if they want to create some kind of arrangement where we can work with outside funding, I'd be happy to do it. But unless or until we get to that point, I just can't risk clients' money on changes that we don't have control over at the end of the day. Now, do you think that the Flutter team maybe will try to contract you guys to work on stuff too? Because, I mean, there's only so few people, right? Do you think they could be a potential client? In my experience, no. I've brought this up to them multiple times. Uh, one thing is that Google as an organization is, at least before I left, for whatever set of reasons, they were really trying to minimize their exposure to outside contractors. So across the entire massive organization, they were reducing that. But even before that, I don't think that the Flutter organization really had permission to do that kind of thing. I think they should. Um, so if we kind of go down a little bit of a tangent to your question, there's this overarching question for the Flutter organization that the organization is scaling its applicability way faster than they're scaling their labor. In fact, I would argue there's no reasonable way for them to scale their labor to match all these platforms they're going to and all these use cases that people are now choosing Flutter to implement. So how does a team that can't grow fast enough still service that community? In my mind, the only way you really get there is if you find a really constructive way to use the community. And that can kind of go one of two directions. Direction one is that you take the Flutter org and you reorient it so that the Flutter org is actually primarily facilitators of outside contributors. That what they do every day is review PRs, they educate people how to contribute, and they become facilitators to help the rest of us bring things into Flutter. Option two is the contracting model, where you take people like me who aren't in the organization, but you hire us, we're competent, we know what we're doing, you hire us to build individual features effectively and get them merged into Flutter, and then your team goes from 50 people to maybe 500 people. But the one thing that and of course, I've never been a high-level executive, so what do I know? But just kind of from the outside looking in, I don't know how that organization keeps up with the rate that the use of the tool is moving, given you just can't hire enough people and, and get them working effectively that quickly, I don't think. Do you know how many developers are actually on the Flutter team? Because I know the Flutter team itself, there's more than just developers, right? Uh, before the show, we talked about Miriam, right? She's not really writing code. Neelai is not really writing code. Uh, Chris, maybe, but I don't think he's writing um, like what I would consider Flutter core code, like widgets that we all use, engine, et cetera. Like how many people do you think are actually working on the Flutter engine and the widgets, et cetera, that are really kind of core to Flutter? Yeah, I don't know how large the team is today. Because, uh, you know, I, by the way, I would love if the org would put out a web page that just kind of tells us who's on the team. 
I know maybe some people on the team don't want their name out there, and I, that's a different issue, but it sure would be cool if we could see who's on the team at a given time and who isn't. Because I also, I'll tag people on GitHub, and I actually don't know if they're still on the team anymore. So I'm just like, I have no idea if, they're, if they have anything to do with this. Um, but if I go back to when I was on the team, if I try to kind of think about the seating arrangement and, and count up in my head, I would guess that when I was there, there were maybe... 30 developers that I remember in my vicinity for Flutter. Now, now the Flutter organization and Mountain View also sat with some uh, Dart developers. Now, Dart team, Dart developers were split between Mountain View and Seattle, I think, if I remember correctly. But we had some Dart developers in there with us. We had the Flutter group. We had some DevRel, you mentioned, uh, Neelai, and then Philip was around back then. Uh, and obviously, you know, Chris and so Tim, Tim would travel. Tim's not based in Mountain View, but he would be there from time to time. Uh, but I would guess, again, probably 30 developers on Flutter. And now Flutter, by the way, that org is split into kind of sub teams. So you mentioned the engine. There's a dedicated engine team, people who are specialized in that area of the code base. And I would guess there's only maybe half dozen people on that team. And then there was a plug-in team and maybe a half dozen people on that team. And then the lion's share of the group was in kind of the general framework area. All the Dart stuff that you're familiar with in Flutter. Yeah, there's quite a few pieces of the team. The one thing I don't really like a lot is that um, the Dart and Flutter are too coupled, in my opinion, right? I feel like they're really too coupled because I think now they start to release new Dart versions when new Flutter versions are released, which I'm not super happy about. I think that that coupling could be kind of dangerous. Like, I don't know if how much you're into Ruby, but like, I feel like Ruby and Rails, like for quite a long time, it was like, if you didn't do Rails and you weren't doing Ruby. And I think that kind of slows things down and you're kind of morphing the language fitting for one specific framework, which I think could be a little bit dangerous because if that framework comes out of favor, then you lose the language kind of. Or you have like all this extra stuff that maybe is too specific. Yeah, I, mean, I think definitely there's a concern there. I haven't thought a lot about it, but I think we can imagine two sides to that coin. On the one hand, your analogy to, to Ruby and Rails makes sense. On the other hand, you know, Google loves to be data-driven on their community stuff. So they're always saying who out there, how many people and what proportion are using what. And so if they look out there and they realize that 98% of all Dart developers are using it for Flutter, the reality is they're going to make some decisions based on that. Now, I don't have those numbers and I don't know those decisions, but it wouldn't surprise me at all if that's what they're looking at and they're saying, listen, you know, we're not going to dump $10 million into process and uh, mechanisms to detach these things when 98% of that population is using the language for one purpose. But the counterpoint, which you might have in mind, is that Dart could be a great language for many different things. So for me personally, I'm, I try to do everything these days with Dart. Uh, my, not only am I building static content-heavy web pages with Flutter, which people have told me not to do, but the server side for those very simple web pages is a Dart-based image running on Google Cloud, GCP. Uh, so I try to do everything with Flutter and Dart these days. I want to push it as far as I possibly can because one thing that I firmly believe is that the development community that goes around saying use the right tool for the job, they've really gotten this mantra wrong or they've pushed it way too far. 
tools are things built by man. It's up to us what tools exist. So you get into this cyclic world when you say, well, use the right tool for the job. Well, who created the tools in the first place? So there's a massive opportunity cost or switching cost that you pay when you go from one language to another, one framework to another, one ecosystem to another. I would like to see the level of production and value creation that we can reach when we're not constantly switching those things. So if we can take Dart to a Flutter app and to the backend server and maybe to some embedded system, and then we can use Flutter on Android, iOS, Mac, Windows, Linux, web, well, now we can stop worrying about all these silly technical details and we can start creating things of value for other human beings. That's the mindset that I'm in. And so to your point, if we, you know, well, if, if Google makes Dart too specific, then we may lose out on those opportunities and then we're back to paying that opportunity cost. And then instead of creating important things for human beings, we're just trying to satisfy CPUs. Yeah, but that's exactly my point, right? Is that, you know, I, I like you said, I look more at your kind of your point B or your latter point. And I think that looking at other use cases, you can find more things that could be even more useful. Uh, nothing's coming to mind necessarily, but we can even talk about the origin of Dart, right? Dart was kind of there to make, I don't know how you would say this in a proper way, but kind of a better way of doing JavaScript, uh, something like that. I, I can't remember the way that he put it when I, when I talked with, um, with Lund about this, uh, that was kind of what he was saying, that he wanted to find a better way to do it for the, for the uh, JavaScript interpreter. Didn't work out that way, but in the end, it worked out great for what it does now, at least, right? And that's also one of the things that I'm a little bit saddened with is that I think there's value in people using Dart in more than just Flutter. But at the same time, there's just no ecosystem there. And there were some things that were kind of created. I think you must, you probably know more than me, but there was a couple of database ORMs, I think, in something called Alfred, I believe it was called. There was some stuff that was being done, but I think it's been stopped, right? There was, uh, I think about Aqueduct. Yeah, sorry, Aqueduct, not Alfred, Aqueduct. Yeah, I think Aqueduct was there and then they just kind of stopped working on it for whatever reason. I can't remember what the exact reason was. Maybe That's you right. know. Um, yeah, I mean, they had, they had a blog post about it. I, I can't remember the exact reason. It was some corporate this or that. But uh, yeah, Aqueduct was some kind of, of web server Dart-based package that was available and then they, they retired it. it. Just speaking for myself, you know, I'm just using the shelf package that uh, came from Kev Moo on, uh, I think that's his handle on both GitHub and Twitter, but he's a member of the Dartlang team. I think he's a PM. Um, that's enough for me to serve web pages and things from my own web server. But, I, you know, I would, I, so two things there. I would love to see people get together and build out more of that web server side. Again, I'm not here to say that Dart is the best language ever created for web servers. Uh, and, and we should, we want to avoid the extremes. Just because something isn't the best ever doesn't mean it's the worst ever and doesn't mean you shouldn't use it or touch it. At the end of the day, it's valuable if you and I can jump from building the thing a user is seeing and touching to the thing that provides all the information to the thing the user is seeing and touching. And so I'd love to see the community come together and, uh, and rediscover the use of Dart on the back end and build tooling for that. But that brings us right back to the Flutter Bounty Hunters. You know, if companies want that, if companies have the funding but not the team to do it, that's exactly the kind of thing that we could go spec out and design and build because we're not just 
Flutter open source were also Dart open source, which includes could include backend development too. But the the mission of the Flutter bounty hunters at the end of the day goes to your point about the ecosystem. We want an ecosystem that tends to have every tool that the community is likely to need. And we want that tool to be well thought out, well designed, well implemented, and well tested. And this is an attempt at a business model to help do that work. But of course, there are plenty of other people who are donating nights and weekends as well to that same goal. One warning, though, I would give to everyone is that we don't want PubDev to kind of turn into the junkyard that a lot of NPM happens to be. A lot of projects that are just people playing around, prototypes, experiments, half-baked ideas. Like, that's what GitHub is for. You know, share a GitHub link if you have a prototype. We should really reserve PubDev for things that we want other people to use. And if we want other people to use it, there are certain quality standards that we should impose on ourselves. So we have Tony Thomas is giving a shout out to you saying, hello, super declarative. Do you want to shout out back to him? Tony Thomas, how's it going? Yeah, I'm hoping we get more and more people to kind of reach out to us. I'm still, um, that's kind of why I do this live stream because you don't always get a chance to talk to people, right? So it's a good chance. Well, I'll tell you, if we, if we do it again, I'll do a countdown on my Twitter. I'll account down by the day and try to get everybody hyped up. We can definitely do it again. It's up to your schedule. I mean, this month is pretty, pretty clear for me. I have, I can't, I can't code so much as you can see. So I have time to, and I also have staff for me to put all the live stream stuff together. So I can just, you know, as you can see, I'm tapping buttons over here, but not too much. Um, yeah, I, I, the one thing that sticks out in my mind is like, you know, I try to use the best tool for the, for the job, but of course everybody has a bias, right? I think if, like you said, if there, if the ecosystem was there, I would be looking at Dart. Just, just to take a look, right? But, um, yeah, we were definitely missing the ecosystem, sadly. And I don't know, things may be different if I, if the, if the ecosystem was different. Uh, but you know, I think Dart is a simple language. It's easy to learn. There's, there's, of course, there's some difficulties to it, and there's definitely a lot of oop to it. But at the same time, it's Flutter's made Dart easy to learn. I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know about your experience, but for me, I had, when I first started experimenting with Flutter, I mean, I found the simplicity of Dart and Flutter at the same time. So I went to do a prototype with Flutter. I was working at Nest at the time, and we were starting on a new internal project. And my view was like, listen, every time you start a new project, you kind of have the professional responsibility to see what your technology options are so you can make sure you're using the one that's going to be best suited for what you're trying to build. At that time, Flutter was still just this kind of new idea that people were, were beginning to talk about. And so in a single day, having never seen a line of Dart code or Flutter code, I was able to recreate in a near pixel perfect manner the sign in and sign up screen from the Nest app. So a professional sign in sign up screen with graphics, forms, animations, all of that. I recreated it in less than one workday using a language I had never seen before and Flutter's APIs, which I had never seen before. And that doesn't tell you everything you need to know, but that should tell you something that you need to know about the simplicity of the language and the widget tree APIs. But okay, you, you did it all the first day, right? But how performant was it? It was totally fine, 60 FPS. Okay, but do you think you did everything correct compared to what you do now? I, I, I don't think so, right? There, but yes, I agree, you can, you can definitely launch stuff out, right? The thing is, like, if I look at my code that I wrote the first, let's just say the first two weeks compared to now where it's been over at least more than a year. I don't remember how long I've been doing Flutter for. 
it's like night and day, I think, because I definitely have like I had no sense of state management. Like I just went straight for set set state, uh, which could work for small apps. But like, there's no such thing as a small app when you're making stuff for clients, which are, you know, they have much more complicated um, requirements, right? So I mean, yes, it's easy to get started. I might have a little bit of a different viewpoint. Certainly, there is truth to what you're saying about the complexity of applications. Contrary to what the Flutter webpage currently has plastered to its header, uh, I do not think Flutter has been or should ever be an application framework. I think both of those terms are in the wrong direction. When I look at Flutter, I see a UI toolkit. I see a box of tools for user interfaces. So when you talk about state management, which it's a whole topic we can get into with my belief system that there is no such thing as state management, but what you're getting at are the application rules, the business rules, the user experience, the user journey. Those are things you need to program in Dart related to Flutter, but I don't think of that as a Flutter problem or solution. I look at what I'm doing with widgets, the things that I'm rendering, the things that I'm animating. Those are Flutter problems and Flutter solutions. Everything else I call application development. So with the day that I built, rebuilt the Nest login screen, it's true that I didn't have caching mechanisms or databases or that kind of stuff, but everything at the Flutter level of the UI was just fine. Now, like, technically, if I took that same widget tree and looked at it again today, are there some widgets that I would switch for others? Probably. But I think the important point is that whatever widgets I used gave me exactly what I wanted to render and did it at 60 FPS and didn't lock me in to any particular bad position, whatever I needed to do from an application standpoint, what I did in that widget tree did not get in my way at all. So I like to keep those things uh, very separate. I got, uh, there was another point I was going to make, but I've forgotten it. So I'll just leave, I'll leave it at that, that it, the flutter part uh, I actually think was, was fine after a single day, regardless of what I may have needed to do the next day in terms of business rules and application rules. Okay, but there could still be an issue. Let's leave the state management out, right? If you, I mean, you could still run into problems where if you don't set up your widget tree properly and you have like a small change that actually causes a lot more things to re-render, that could definitely bring your app to a crawl, right? Sure. There's so, absolutely a possibility yeah. that you can do things that are a problem. But whenever a developer talks to me about visual performance problems, the first question I ask them is, how many frames are you dropping? And typically that developer looks at me with a funny look on their face. Of, what do you mean, how many frames am I dropping? And I say, you just told me you have a, a UI performance problem. How many frames are you dropping? And with very few exceptions, they haven't even measured it. They haven't even looked at whether they're dropping frames. And this is where we need to differentiate between the religion of performance and the utility of performance. If your user interface is janky, laggy, dropping frames, you have a problem, period. doesn't matter what you did or didn't do. You need to go do something else because that can't happen. At the same time, if you are never, ever dropping a frame and there is no jank, you can talk to me about, well, conceptually, I can put a builder here and this. Okay, but you don't have a problem. There is no performance problem because literally nothing is happening that's creating an issue. So at that point, you're just getting into feeling better about your decisions rather than solving an actual performance problem. And I think it's important to keep those two things separate. 
Okay, so let's say that we think we have a UI performance problem. How would you determine if you do, and how do you measure that? Like, what tools do you use? Sometimes you can see it right off the bat. So one, one important thing for every Flutter developer to remember, you don't know if you have a performance problem until you build in profile mode. Debug mode includes all sorts of things that are running through the CPU that simply don't exist in release or profile mode. The reason profile mode exists is to still give you access to various print statements and some diagnostics, but it removes all of the heavy debug stuff that you normally have. So don't assume you have a performance problem until you are in profile mode. Then once you're in profile mode, sometimes it's going to be very obvious. You're going to navigate between screens or tap a button and you're going to see the jank right in front of you, in which case I would go take a look at that widget tree and just kind of scratch my head and say, does anything jump out to me as unnecessary builds here? Is there some weird place where I'm calling set state that is happening way too much? But if that doesn't tell you more, then Flutter comes with an entire debugging suite. And I'll be honest, I haven't had much need for it. But when you want to get in there and figure out exactly where you are dropping frames, you can open the Flutter debugger and it will give you a little chart that goes up and down and shows you the time per frame. And it will take frames in red where it took too long to render. Like that frame is one of the frames that you drop or you drop 10 frames in a row or whatever it is. So you, you start kind of trying to correlate what you're seeing in that debugger to what you're doing in your widget tree. Once you figure out where they're connected, then you can make the adjustment. Um, but I guess, you know, for most developers who are spending their time in the widget tree, because of course, again, contrary to common uh, phrasing, not everything is a widget. Very few things are a widget. But you have your widget tree, your element tree, your render object tree, your semantics tree, and your layer tree. Any one of those could be playing some kind of role in a performance problem. But if you are working almost entirely in your widget tree, probably that's where your issue is. And therefore, the problem is probably that you are calling set state when you don't need to, or you are doing long-running operations or calculations in the middle of the building process of that tree, that's where you should tend to look first because those are going to be the majority of the issues as to why you're dropping frames. When you say jank, right? I always hear the term jank, but I've never really seen any type of jank when I'm working on iOS. Maybe can you describe what a jank would look like? Because I know it's mostly related to, I think, the shaders within iOS. Is that right? Jank is a general term for any choppy animation. So if at any time you see anything sliding or expanding or shrinking and it, it's kind of jittering along, clearly not doing it in a continuous motion, we would call that jank. And jank is typically caused by dropped frames. So the animation was expecting 50 frames to complete. Half of those frames never got rendered. And so you're, you keep jumping further than you should. We call that jank. And why is it that they always say iOS always has a jank problem? Is it true that iOS has a jank problem and that we should be, you know, kind of aware of that? There was a specific issue on a specific version of iOS. Uh, so some animations are, well, at a certain level, it might be the case that all animations are dealt with at the GPU level with texture-based manipulation. But certainly certain uh, navigation animations, like sliding a page in and out or up, or up and down, there are associated, I think, shader programs that take care of that animation. What I, to my understanding, I wasn't deeply involved with this at all. I just remember kind of reading about it. But my understanding is that for some reason on a recent version of iOS, 
those animations weren't loaded until the first time you use them, meaning the part of the GPU that calculates all that stuff didn't load the little program until right up the moment that you first needed it. But I think app launches for iOS involved some of those animations. So a very early thing that happened was to need the animation, but it wasn't yet loaded into the GPU, and therefore you had to wait for it first to go into the GPU and then do the animation. Well, loading that thing, visually, you can't, like, let's keep, let's keep in mind that if you're operating at 60 frames per second, you have 16 milliseconds for your entire frame. That's processing user input, that's running full layout, that's running painting, and of course, updating all the animation state. You have 16 milliseconds. At that level, the time it takes just to get that shader program into the GPU is going to impact the appearance of fluidity in those animations. So on iOS, there was this consistent report of, hey, my users are, are launching the app, and the first time they do these three things, it's super janky. Well, that's because each of those three animations needed to go load the program into the GPU. Now, I also believe that this issue was resolved by automatically loading those little shader programs at the beginning of the application, no matter what. So now if you open an iOS application with Flutter, those commonly used animations are immediately going to the GPU. So the moment you run them for the first time, they are what we would call buttery smooth. That's how I believe the issue was solved. Now, if you want the official story on that, you probably want to bring in an engine developer who no doubt had to do some work uh, to fix that issue. Yeah, I'd love to bring them in. I know I had people, I, I always had, like I had a developer over here who was talking to me about jank and I was like, I've never seen any jank. All I do is develop on my iOS. But then again, I've, maybe I didn't really notice it because I'm aware that debug, you're going to be a little bit slower. And so I kind of already had my expectations in a certain way. So maybe it's just that I saw it, but didn't really register in my mind. Um, actually, this, this is another good question, right? So I always try to run my apps either in release mode to check some stuff or in debug mode. Uh, I completely forgot about profile mode. Thanks for reminding me. Now, what's the difference between profile mode and release mode? And why would I want to use one over the other? So the best person to give you an answer to that would be probably someone who uh, builds the tools that are used in there. But my understanding is that debug mode has a mountain of various toolings built in. Profile mode does not completely remove all diagnostics. It just removes the vast majority. So you kind of have just enough diagnostic tooling added into your application so that you can get the timing on certain things and figure out maybe where something's going wrong. You have just enough instrumentation to debug, but nothing more. And so it's not that profile mode is exactly as performant as release, but it's like debug mode, let's say, is a thousand times slower than release. Profile mode is maybe 10 times slow. I mean, these are made up numbers, but 10 times slower than release. Well, 10 times is a whole lot better than a thousand times. And so generally speaking, profile mode is a fine estimation for what you're going to get in release mode. We got a comment from the audience from, uh, I'm not sure how to say it's Borhan or Borjan Dev, who said, hi, great insights, right? And I think it's also pretty good insights that you're bringing to us because I didn't dig so deep before. So it's good to hear some, uh, some feedback from somebody who's dug a little bit deeper than me, at least. Sure. Well, hello. <laughs> Um, okay. 
Uh, actually, I kind of like to talk a little bit more about your history, right? So um, you you got into Google. You're working originally. I mean, was your first team at Google at Nest, or this is this where you got transferred to eventually? It was at Nest. I was at Nest for about three years before transferring to the Flutter team. So how how was your time at Nest? Like, what exactly were you doing? Were you just building apps for the Nest, or what were you doing? I was an Android developer, so I worked on the Android version of the app. Obviously, we had Android, iOS, and web at Nest. And when I first got there, we were actually all segmented completely by platform. It was all the Android developers here, all the iOS developers there, web developers elsewhere. Eventually, we reshuffled into what the industry typically calls feature teams, where we take a cross-section of Android, iOS, and web And this group of people focuses on these features and this other group over here focuses on these other features. The benefit there is that one of my perpetual issues with our industry is that we keep putting technical details above business details. We keep forgetting that the only reason we have the technology is to support business and to support products and to support values. But instead, we go off to our Android conferences and iOS conferences, whereas I think really, if we were working purely for customer value, people from Nest would have gone to IoT conferences. We would have gone to smart home conferences to learn about our business and our customers and how we're changing that that marketplace. And that's where feature teams come in, is they say, listen, you have your different technical expertise, that's great, but really what we need you to be an expert about is this area of our product. In my case, for example... Our team was responsible for the smoke detector experience and the alarm experience. So if your house was burning down or burglarized, I, may, I played a role on what you saw on Android when that was happening. Uh, we also dealt with the idea of home and away. So when you come home, the app recognizes that you are home and that then propagates to your devices when you're away. Same thing. So for example, the AC or the heater, that is going to tend to turn on when you come home or shortly before you come home. It might turn off when you go away, so you're saving money on energy. That was the area, those are the areas of the app that that my team worked on mostly. And again, at that time, I was an Android developer. By the time I was all said and done, I'd been an Android developer for probably seven plus years, the better part of a decade. And uh, and I hated it. Android development is terrible. Uh, The only thing that's worse are all the alternatives. So this is one of the big reasons why I'm a big proponent for Flutter. In my opinion, Flutter has, I talk about a UI revolution with Flutter. And what I mean by that is if Flutter truly becomes ubiquitous, if I can build absolutely any user interface on iOS, Android, Mac, Windows, Linux, web, then we don't have to be platform developers anymore. You and I aren't Android versus iOS anymore. You and I are user experience developers We will understand the customer. We will understand the product. And you and I will work together to deliver the best product. It just happens to be built with Flutter. And we don't have to worry anymore about these silly CPU differences or the different rectangles. Who cares? We care about the product and the user. We care about the humans. When you talk about Nest, I can't help but think about that joke I've seen online about, you know, people saying that, uh, what was it? I can't remember what the setup is, but it's something like I left, my wife left, and then the toaster left, and I shot the toaster. Do you remember this one? <laughs> I do. I yes. I don't remember the exact framing of it. It was like uh, you know, I yeah, you know, something about like my wife says I don't listen, and then I said I didn't say that, and the toaster jumps in, and 
reminds you of what you said previously as though it was recording your conversation. So you shot the toaster. Yeah, I remember that. Some joke along those lines is pretty good. I think the setup was something about talking about, like, I don't have any smart home stuff. Like, I'm a developer. I'll have this my gun and uh, a broken printer. And then I laughed. My wife laughed. And then the toaster laughed. And I yeah, shot yeah, the toaster that's, that's or something right. ridiculous right. like that. Yeah. <laughs> I can't help but think about that. Do you, have, do you actually have any smart home stuff in your home? Or are you kind of on the side where it's like, hmm? I've actually really, got a, you know, I've got a that's, Google speaker right here. And I'm hoping I don't set it off with the keyword at any point in this conversation. But yeah, I, um, it's, you know, I'm of two minds about it. On the one hand, I think the concern is very legitimate. On the other hand, it's almost like it's a tide that's so strong that even if I sit here and try to keep all that stuff out of my life, sooner or later, it's going to get here. And so I might as well just learn to live with it at this point. Uh, if I had any extremely sensitive anything happening in my house, maybe I'd be a little more careful. But uh, generally, I, yeah, I'll get the speakers. I don't care. I'll, I'll, and I've got, obviously, I have Nest devices everywhere. But then again, uh, our smoke detectors and our thermostats don't have microphones as far as I know. But the, the Nest-based cameras certainly do. So I, I hope that when the light is off, the camera is actually off. But I, I wouldn't know if it wasn't. I think they already, I think it's pretty clear that that's why everybody puts a piece of tape over their camera on their computer that lights mean nothing <laughs> for some reason. I don't know why they can't connect it. Yeah. And I do have that. I have on my laptop here, on my laptop here, I have one of those little sliders over the camera. Yeah. I have the same thing, but I mean, I don't know. I don't know what to say. I'm, I'm in a similar mindset as you that like, you can't stop some of the stuff, but at least you can kind of protect yourself a little bit and just rip the battery out of your phone if you can, whenever you want to talk about something very private that you don't want anybody to know about for whatever reason, you know, I'm not here to judge, but we all have our secrets. So maybe one day every house will come with a room that has a Faraday cage. So if you ever really need to get away from all the electronics, you step into the Faraday cage, have your arguments and then leave the Faraday cage. But now you're helping me to think about, is it Space Odyssey 2001? I can't remember which one. What's the one with Hal? Was that the one, Space Odyssey? Yeah, Space Odyssey. You've seen that movie, right? Yeah. So do you remember when they went into a special room with no stuff on, and then the robot's still reading the lips and knowing exactly what's going on? Yeah. Yeah, they'll, they'll get smart. If, then you're going to be in that situation. <laughs> yeah, Elon Musk is trying to warn us about that, but uh, we're not listening. Yeah. Is he? I, I haven't heard about that. Um, oh, yeah, he's got, you know, he's... he's you know, he's all about self-driving, obviously, but he's like, listen, we should not be messing with general intelligence AI. That, that's not a situation we want to deal with. But still, I'm sure there are a bunch of companies racing towards general intelligence AI if they can get there. I mean, AI is still coming. It's going to take some time, but I still don't think we're at a place where it could be too scary. Like, maybe I'm working with the wrong AI, but, you know, you always go to, like, your bank, like, you know, support chat. And they, you say, what's wrong? What can I help you with? And you're like, oh, I can't log in. And they say, I don't understand what you're saying. Let me go get a person. It's always like that for every single live chat thing. And it annoys the hell out of me. Well, yeah, I mean, a lot of that stuff is actually still just if statements under the surface. And even if it's not if statements, like general AI, true cognition, that's a totally different beast. Anything that you and I are interacting with are very, like, uh, honestly, a lot of it is just specialized statistics. It's just like, if, you know, if you became a PhD in statistics, today you just call yourself a data scientist and you say that you work in artificial intelligence. That's a very different beast from general cognition. 
I just don't have enough domain to know about this stuff, but I, I understand what you're saying. I'm also in the same mindset about a lot of stuff, a bunch of is statements, because that's what I usually see for a lot of these kind of frameworks out there that you can work with in programming. Yeah. Um, so you're working at Nest. You, where did the idea of Flutter come from? I mean, because like you said, it's still quite young, right? So what, how, how did it come onto your radar? I honestly don't even remember. I know that I think that spring of 2017, someone had mentioned it to me. I think maybe they, they even had, they may have had a presentation at Google I.O. in that spring, but I didn't watch it. So, but somehow that name got to me in the later part of 2017. And again, the, the moment that took place, like when I experimented with Flutter, it wasn't just Flutter. The, the situation was, hey, we're about to start a new app. We know that there are some number of non-traditional technologies, whether it be React Native, whether it be Angular Native, whether it be Ionic. These things are out there. We know they're out there. Let's see if any of them are a better bet for us than traditional Android and iOS. Flutter was among that list. I mean, even though it was early on, if you go look for the options, Flutter was there. And so we decided to put it on the list. But I don't remember like the exact moment or situation where I was like, aha, let's, let's try Flutter. So whose choice was it? Was there a team lead or was it a bunch of you guys together that just said, let's give it a try or, or was it all on you? I was the one that gave it a try. Um, and then I pretty much pushed for it. Once I saw the nature of how quickly and how effectively, because again, so this internal project, it ended up really not going anywhere. But early on, the idea was that we're going to need to try a bunch of stuff. You know, we don't know what we're building yet. This thing could go a million different directions. And so what I said to the team was, look, we need to be able to turn on a dime. And we know we can't do that with traditional Android and iOS. And based on my little exploration with React Native, that looks like a hornet's nest of problems. I'm not interested in that. But this Flutter thing, look how quickly I can change everything on the screen with Hot Reload. It takes it's just no effort at all to change absolutely everything in the UI. We should use this for our this app that we're going to end up exploring a bunch of different user experiences. So it sounds like the hot code reload is really what made you say, listen, this is there's something over here, right? Is that was that what I'm hearing? Well, it's part of it, but even if it didn't have hot reload, still the widget tree is like a 10x or 100x speed improvement over the the view hierarchy in Android and iOS. I mean, if we specifically talk about like list views, if I remember correctly, like if you implement a list view in Android, there's a lot of stuff to, to set up, a lot of ceremony, a lot of things to think about. But with list views in Flutter, it's really much more straightforward, right? That's right. A list view on Android requires something called an adapter, which is what maps from data or information to the actual item that appears in the list. On iOS, there is something called like a UI table, something, something, something delegate. Every name in iOS has 15 words, but there's a delegate that does the same job on iOS. And yeah, it's a bunch of, it's a bunch of information that's like always the same. So that's where, when you mentioned ceremony, it, you know, there's boilerplate that matters and there's boilerplate that doesn't matter. Often developers can't tell the difference, but one of the ways to differentiate is that if the stuff you're filling in is always the same or nearly identical, then there's something wrong here. The, the, the division of, of what's required is not in the right place because you shouldn't have to repeat the same information over and over and over again for the exact same reason. So on Android and iOS, yes, there's a lot of that to fill in the adapter or the delegate. In Flutter, 
It just says, oh, you want a list? Okay, what's in your list? Done. That's it. I remember the first app I ever made for mobile was definitely iOS. It was Objective-C days, right? So even before Swift was even on the radar. And then, of course, whenever you build iOS or Android, you have to build a complementary one in the other platform. And so I built the same one, just took my iOS version, basically class for class, moved what I could over. And then I ended up like looking at it and I was like, why the hell do I have two extra classes in Android? I remember one specifically was, I think, for ordering of something. Like I had to make a special class just for ordering the data, if I remember correctly. I, I just still it think it's be. just I, ridiculous. I, I chucked it up to, to Java. Yeah. There have been a lot of changes in that area over even while I was working at Nest. But one thing you might be thinking of could deal with diffing. So if, if you needed to run diffs on your list, there's a diffing utility that you then delegate to. But it could be any number of things. I, I guess the, the point is iOS or Android, they made you care about a bunch of things that you often didn't care about. And it just slowed you down and you had to do it for every single list. And this, this is an example, by the way, of the difference between an application framework and a UI toolkit. Fundamentally, the reason that Flutter is easier is because all Flutter asks you to provide are the visuals. Tell us visually what's in your list. If it's list tiles or images or whatever, it doesn't care. You just stick image widgets inside a list view. So what is Flutter not asking you for? It's not asking you for any representation of data. It does not care at all. Did it come from a database? Did it come from a file? Is it available immediately or is it loaded asynchronously? Is it in a data structure? Is it, a, is it strings? Flutter doesn't ask. Flutter doesn't care because that's your job as an application developer. It's not Flutter's job when it's rendering a list to care where on earth your data came from. Yeah, this, this is true. It's a good point. Um... Yeah, like you said, I'm also in the same mindset about Flutter being a good UI toolkit. So then what do you think we should do when it comes to, because let's face it, right? UI is just there to display the data. I'm not saying it's not important. That's probably one of the most important pieces because we have to interact with it. We have to look at it. It has to be somewhat pleasing, somewhat easy to understand. But like, what would you call all the pieces of the application logic and how do you think we should organize this kind of stuff? Boy, that gets into a really deep topic. Uh, we can go into that a little bit, but first let me refer the audience somewhere. I would recommend that the audience check out some of Bob Martin's lectures. Bob Martin, also known as Robert C. Martin, also known as Uncle Bob. Uh, he's a career-long programmer, developer. He's a coach, a trainer, these kinds of things. And one of the topics that he talks about is architecture. And I think most develop, well, I don't even know if architecture as a metaphor is a good idea. I have my issues with it. But even if it is a good idea, I think most developers get this wrong. They, developers confuse patterns and frameworks with architecture. MVC, MVP, MVVM, these are not architectures. If you apply them, it's a pattern. If you use somebody else's tool to enforce them, it's a framework. Neither of those things is architecture. Architecture is more of like, I step back from the code and I look at the rough division of behavior and I can tell, oh, that's an airline app. Oh, that's a banking app. And but what Bob Martin would say is it's similar to when you step back from a blueprint. And he says, you know, I can't tell you what exactly is in this building, but I can tell you it's a library or I can tell you it's an office building just by stepping back and looking at the overall form of what's in front of you in the blueprint. And he carries that 
um, that understanding into code as well. It's not about the specifics. It's not about the rules. It's about the general form. I so in my code, there are very very few rules that I try to apply to everything that I do. I try to take every problem as a unique problem. I try to understand it in isolation, and then I try to solve for the constraints of that problem. And you know, maybe we can talk about Super Editor in a few minutes to get into some of that. But if there are, let's see, if there are any rules that I tend to follow, one is that my packaging of code is based on feature. I look at a program, an application, as an accumulation of features. That that's fundamentally what it is. And if you if you look at tickets that you get, by the way, from a product team, that's how it works. A product team says, add this feature change this existing feature or remove this feature. That's what an application really is. It's a bundle of features. So if you're going to add, change, and remove features, it is in your interest to have those features as independent as possible. Because what's the alternative? The alternative is that they're codependent. So every time you add, change, or remove one, you end up messing with two, three, five others. This is how you get into spaghetti code and related problems. So I package by feature and then I, for things that are cross-cutting, I might have a package dedicated to infrastructure that deals with underlying things like caching, networking, things that go cut across all of those different features. And then on top of that, I care a lot about testing. Uh, I, don't, um, I don't believe that you need any particular test coverage number. Again, I'm not run by very specific rules. But... Testing is not optional to me. It's not, it's not a chore that you do after the fact. It's not a nice to have. Testing is part and parcel with the development of software. If you can't take the code that you just wrote and execute it with some real, you know, real not as in like integration tests, but real as in legitimate, reasonable, predictable use cases. If you can't run that code, you don't know if it works. And how can you say you're done with the work if you don't know that it does what you made it to do? So testing is part and parcel. It's not extra. It's not separate. And in fact, I think it was also Bob Martin that said this. I think he actually puts his tests in his source code, like next to the source files. I would actually do that if I could. Unfortunately, for example, the Flutter tool assumes your tests are all in a different directory called tests. And there would be other complications if you tried to stick it in source code, like Goldens would generate in the middle of your source code. So we're not really equipped to do that. But honestly, if I could write test files in the middle of source code, I would, because tests are not some alien concept. They are very closely related to the source code, and they are necessary. So those two things are probably the only rules that I follow constantly, and everything else is up for debate based on the circumstance. I know you mentioned that, you know, for you, there's such thing as state management, but I'm not sure how you would call that area of kind of frameworks, right? Because these are like frameworks, according to what I understand your definition, where you take ideas or patterns and you actually have like a tool or system to kind of help you out with that. Are you, do you use something like Riverpod or Flutter Block or something of the sort or provider even when you're working with Flutter? Um, the short answer to that is no, not generally, but let's also break that down. There's not, it doesn't really make any sense to ever have you say Riverpod, I'll say provider because I never upgraded. I don't, my experiences with provider and not Riverpod. But a lot of people bring up provider in the same sentence as blocks. These tools have nothing to do with each other. And I don't just mean technically, I mean the purpose for their existence is totally unrelated. 
What is Provider? Provider is a dependency injection tool that operates in your widget tree. So you just had Thomas on here, right? And he was talking about his package, Gitit. What is Gitit? Gitit is a dependency injector that operates from a static singleton. So it's something that gives you your dependencies from up in the static cloud. Well, Provider does the same thing. It gives you your dependencies, but the way it gets them to you is by searching up your widget tree. Same result, different mechanic. So Gitit and Provider, very comparable. They solve the same problem in two different ways. Blocks has nothing to do with dependency injection. Blocks is, well, if we, <laughs> if we include everything that people call blocks, then blocks means absolutely nothing because people have abused that concept to no end. But if you go more with the Flutter block package and you look at how the developers around that project tend to use it, blocks are a constraint on the flow of information. How does information move into and out of the widget tree and how does it move through your business rules? It tells you, you will create blocks. Blocks will be classes with streams. Streams will talk to other streams and the eventual propagation of information through those streams will result in the network request that you want, the caching that you want, the file system changes that you want and the UI updates that you want. That is similar to Redux. What does Redux say? Redux says that all information in your application shall be stored in a single universal store. That store will notify all clients of changes through events. When the user interacts with the user interface, it will dispatch actions, which then go through resolvers, which then mutate the store, which then notifies of the UI of changes, which then has another user interaction that then goes through actions, resolvers, the store. And this, it's this cycle around and around. That is a unidirectional information flow tool. It is meant to constrain absolutely everything you do to go through this one pipeline. And someone who's pro-Redux would say, the reason we do that is because by constraining all developers into that pipeline, we can install certain tools and we can make certain statements that we know are always true. Fair enough. The downside is that every single developer is constrained by that one set of tools, no matter what problem they're solving, no matter what the complexity. Same issue with blocks. So blocks, can you stick some interesting tooling in there? Can you make some useful statements about what is always true? Maybe you can. The other side is that no matter what problem I'm solving, whether I'm dealing with a user tapping on a button or whether I'm dealing with somebody editing rich text in a text editor, everything is just a sea of blocks. I would say that there's a downside to that as well. But those are, are information flow constraints, which have nothing, therefore, to do with provider and get it. Um, now, you asked, what would I call these other areas of code? Well, I guess I should have been more clear a moment ago when I was talking about architecture. I don't give them names in general, because in my opinion, the problems that you're solving for an airline app don't have anything in common most of the time with the problems that you're solving for a banking app. From the, from the app perspective, now networking, yeah, HTTP is always HTTP. Painting pixels is always painting pixels. But the business problems that you're solving for an airline industry aren't the same problems that you're solving for a banking industry. So why would we want or expect the structures in those apps to be the same? That's where I start to have a contention with something like blocks. I don't want 
Like blocks, in a sense, are reinventing programming. Because if you can do absolutely anything with blocks, well, we can already do that. It's called the programming language, and we have Dart. So I'm more interested in really investigating the domain problem and solving the domain problem on its own without worrying about what other apps would call this same thing, because I'm not building other apps and I'm not working in other industries. I'm right here solving this problem right now. Okay. I, I understand what you're saying. It makes sense. Um, but is there anything, any kind of specific packages that are like always in your tool belt that you're saying, okay, like I'm going to make an app in Flutter. Generally, I'm going to need something like this, something like that. These are the things I'm going to be reaching for most of the time. I understand that some, like you said, airline app versus maybe a tic-tac-toe app that's going to be offline, right, are totally different apps. They have different concerns, different constraints, et cetera, right? But is there some kind of tools that you usually have in your tool belt that you're saying, okay, I'm going to be making an app, most likely I'm going to need this or this. These are kind of things that I usually like to work with. So I don't ever put any packages into my pub spec right off the bat. I always wait until I need it. But every project that I'm working on ends up with Golden Toolkit in there. So I'm a very big fan of generating Goldens. I think they're really underutilized as a testing mechanism. And if I'm going to generate Goldens, Golden Toolkit offers a number of capabilities that are very useful and there's no reason to rewrite them in every project. So Golden Toolkit always ends up in there. Beyond that, I'm trying to think like what in terms of actual application dependencies I tend to end up with. There may be some things around like image loading that tends to make it in there. Pretty much every app displays images. Every one of those images has to load. If you want to show something while it's loading, there may be a, a package or two related to that. But other than that, off the top of my head, I'm not thinking of anything that's truly in all or, or most of the apps. And of course, a fair amount of my work these days is on packages and open source work. Uh, and Super Editor has like none or almost no dependencies of any kind. And Flutter Processing has almost no dependencies of any kind. So I really do, I, I have minimal dependencies pretty much across all my projects. And I would point out to anybody listening, obviously there are times when you want to use packages and they're very useful and they save you money and time. But every single package you compile into your project is a liability on multiple fronts. So you should make sure that there is good reason to be depending on a package. Like There's a reason it's called dependencies, right? There's a reason we say you depend on the package. So be careful what you are depending upon, especially when your company ends up depending upon it. It can be a dangerous game to play. Yeah, definitely. Like Going back to what we talked about, um, aqua, Aqueduct, right? If you were dependent upon Aqueduct for your entire product, you're in a serious situation right now because you just don't have the backing like you used to have, right? That's right. And that one was especially tough because if you were going to build that kind of, of backend with Dart, you probably wanted that tool. Like that tool probably did offer a lot of value. It made things a lot easier. And so that's one of the ones that I probably would have depended upon. It's just unfortunate they went under. But that's, a yes, a good example of any dependency at any time can disappear. And so you've got to be careful how much you're depending on different things. Well, in that case, I mean, theoretically, Flutter could also disappear, but that's very difficult considering it's open source and the amount of people using it, right? Yeah, I mean, they could kill the organization, though that's very unlikely because there are teams within the company that use Flutter. If they kill the organization, all of us have forks of Flutter. We, so one, you can obviously continue building against it, but then the question would become, okay, well, how do we continue working on it? At that point, we'd have to bring together some kind of movers and shakers in the community 
and create something like a Flutter Foundation where we in the community would would push it forward. Um, so, it, yeah, I mean, Flutter, there's no path where it just completely disappears overnight. But technically, as with any other dependency at all, it's technically possible that it could disappear or stop being developed. Uh, actually, I have a question for you as somebody who's on the inside of Google, right? Uh, I'm aware that that Google is invested, like you said, with using Flutter. But what do you have more of an idea about like what exactly are the top maybe three or even the top one reasons why Google continues to work on Flutter? Um, like because you said like they already have Android, right? Is it that that they want to get is it just to help themselves out and then they're just kind of looking at the community for more input or to kind of like be out there more? Like what is it that Google sees as valuable to them to continue to work on Flutter? I mean, they could just say, okay, you know what? Flutter is Android only. You know, it's good good for all the stuff. And then we just, you know, we can ditch our Android stuff, which which I don't think they're gonna ever do because there's too much stuff written in Android, right? But like what is it that Google keeps working on Flutter for? What's their reason? What are they getting out of it? Yeah, I don't have any official answer on that. I, I, not that I'm not saying something that I know. I've just never known officially because those are conversations that happened well above my pay grade. But there are at least two aspects to consider. One is that we know there's some kind of connection between Flutter and the Fuchsia OS. So if Fuchsia really wants Flutter, well, then Fuchsia is the argument for why Flutter should continue to exist. That's one possibility. Another possibility is that regardless of whether Android is completely removed or something or iOS, if there are all of these teams around Google that have two or three platform teams of developers and they can kind of reduce that to one team and they can move quicker and they can spend, you know, 50% or 25% of their previous budget, well, that's a very significant gain for all of those teams and it's multiplied by whatever number of teams in the organization choose to take that path. So Flutter could make the cost-saving argument that, hey, yes, we're spending $10, $15 million a year on the Flutter team, but we're saving $100 million across the organization. That might be the argument as well. But whatever it is, the Flutter organization has to keep making the argument either every quarter or every year. Like Every organization under that umbrella has to justify their existence on some kind of regular basis. So whatever Flutter's rationale is, they have to keep making the argument every so often to justify why that team sits there spending money. Yeah. I mean, there must be something, and I would love to hear more about that. But like you said, maybe they won't even let anybody know what the reasoning is. But yeah, like you said, too, uh, what, what was it? That you, yeah, Fuchsia, right? Maybe that's what it is, is they want people to use it for everything. And then when Fuchsia comes out, it's just, you know, Here's my app now ready for Fuchsia and nothing you have to do. That's a pretty compelling reason too. Yeah, that's very possible. And, uh, you know, my guess, I, I know the people who would have the answer to that question, but I don't think that from a PR standpoint, the organization would be allowed to explain that rationale. So I wouldn't expect to get that answer anytime soon. Makes me nervous because Google used to say, don't be evil, right? And when, you, when I hear that from you, I wonder, mm, what does that mean? Because <laughs> they were just removed the yeah, don't be but, evil a few years ago, right? There are multiple, so two things can be true at once. Uh, one, Google might be a lot more evil than it used to be, but also there are all sorts of reasons in the marketplace to keep certain pieces of information private. It's not about doing bad things. It's about 
hey, there are a million people that are competing with us across a thousand different dimensions. Certain pieces of information are more valuable, kept internal and kept private. And for various reasons that I may not understand, that may be a piece of information that's simply better. It, it actually keeps Flutter more competitive by keeping that reason to themselves. Uh, I still want to go back to um, more about like, so at your time at, so you're working at Nest and then was it that you're, you really like love Flutter so much that you wanted to get more into Flutter? So you asked to change teams or how did you manage to switch teams? Well, in between starting to use Flutter inside of Nest and actually transferring teams, that's when I started creating those videos called Flutter Challenges. Now, a lot of people misunderstand the name of those videos. They think that when I say Flutter Challenge, I mean I was challenging myself with Flutter, and that's not true. The name was because at that point in time, everybody was skeptical of Flutter because we, like historically, we had PhoneGap, Cordova, Xamarin, Sencha Touch, AppCelerator, Titanium, Ionic, React Native. Each of those were more or less useful than the others, but they all failed miserably at their promises. They promised the world and they delivered very little. So the assumption was Flutter is just the latest in this line of massive failures of excessive promises. And so I saw the early potential. I could see that there were a lot of amazing things that I could do, but could Flutter really live up to this notion of being a quick, easy-to-use, highly-performant UI toolkit. So I set out looking at Dribbble. So Dribbble is a website for designers. Designers publish their creative works on there. A lot of the things on Dribbble are mobile UI designs, and many of those UI designs are animated with user interactions and transitions and things. I said, you know what? I'll go to Dribbble. I will find some designs that I that after seven years, I am incapable of creating with Android. Not that they couldn't be created on Android, but that after seven years, I didn't know how to do it. And I said, if Flutter is so great, I should be able to create these user interfaces with Flutter quickly and effectively. So I decided to film myself doing it. I created those user interfaces. You could see me write every single line. And when we were done, you could see that I got exactly the user interface I wanted and it was rendering at 60 frames per second. So I wasn't challenging myself. I was challenging Flutter. I was saying, you, you promised all these things to us. Now prove it, Flutter. I'm going to create these complex UIs. You show me you can render it. And Flutter did. Flutter worked every single time. So after about a half dozen of those videos, I mean, I was sold. I was like, I've, I've proven it. I have empirically proven that Flutter can do what Flutter says it can do. And that was about the time that I reached out and, uh, and checked to see if they had any interest in having me come join the team. And they did. So that's when I migrated over. What kind of stuff were you working on when you were working on the Flutter team? It was almost entirely the Android embedding. When I joined the Flutter team, they knew that they needed to support... <clears throat> what was what's called add to app. So let's imagine that you have an existing Android app and you want to start adding Flutter to it. Like I want this screen to be Flutter or I want this inner journey to be Flutter. That's called add to app. The issue that, that the team was facing was that all of the Java code <clears throat> that brought Flutter onto Android, it almost entirely ignored the Android lifecycle. Now, I guess before we go any further, do, do you have a background on Android? Do you know about the activity and fragment life cycles and things like that? I know a bit. Like I said, I did an Android app quite a few years ago. So I'm aware of the life cycles where you have like on resume, 
uh, I forgot the name of the one where, if, where like yeah. they just kill your app if it's been in the background. They need more memory. There's different, like you said, life cycles. But maybe you can refresh the audience for people who don't know. Yeah, on on create, on start, on resume, on pause, on stop, on destroy, and then you get various indicators for like memory pressure, like you're discussing. Um, and the reason the life cycle is there is because what you see on the screen of your Android device can come and go at any time. The operating system just comes in and says, hey, we're pausing you or we're throwing you in the background or we're destroying you. You, the app developer, have no control over that. It's all the OS. That life cycle is how you respond to what the operating system is doing with your app. Well, the original uh, Flutter Android embedding ignored pretty much all of those rules. The original embedding assumed that the only thing ever running in the app was this one Flutter UI. And so it just ignore, it didn't play nice with any of the life cycles. The moment you get to add to app, all of those assumptions are gone. None of those things are true anymore. That API, the Flutter Android embedding, essentially needed to be rewritten. Now, some parts were, were very well done because they had to be. So text input, for example, gesture input, that stuff was thorough because that's highly related to Flutter itself. You need text input, you need gesture input. But Flutter activity, Flutter fragment, Flutter view, and then what those had to essentially all be rewritten. And then I ended up introducing the concept of a class called Flutter Engine. And I also rewrote the plugin API for Flutter on Android. And all of that was a way of respecting the operating system lifecycle and signals so that you wouldn't end up with memory leaks and so that you could possibly have multiple Flutter experiences in the same app. And that project, initially we thought, oh, six months. And then, oh, maybe a year. But after two years, that project was finally done. It just kept growing and growing and growing in complexity. But that ended up being almost everything I did while I was on the team. I did a few other things here and there in the Dart world, and I also went to present it at some conferences and things. But in terms of my daily work, that was almost the entirety of it. Now, um, actually, I do have another kind of question. Like, how does the architecture split up between like the Flutter engine and all these kind of connection pieces? Like, uh, we had another guest on the show who actually managed to port the Flutter engine to to Linux, but they're using BuildRoot in kind of a different way than what they're doing now for Linux. Um, like. How does it split up? Because, I mean, what you're working on has to also be included within Flutter. So, like, it's hard for me to kind of keep my mind, like, understanding, like, which pieces are kind of the glue and which pieces are not, but they're still kind of all together in the Flutter um, repo, right? Yeah, I don't have, I'm not great on that topic. Uh, the moment I get into C and C++, my brain just turns off. I'm incapable of understanding that code. However, I can give you a little bit of insights into the boundaries. First of all, if you start looking in the Dart code in Flutter and you just start digging down into the source code, pretty quickly you will start to see Dart methods that are marked extern, as in external. You'll come across Dart method declarations that just defer to C code. Like there's no, you can't go any further down in the tree. You, for example, if you go look at the compositing stuff, look at, uh, for example, layers. If you see things called layers, um, or if you go look at text painting, if you, there's a, a class called, I believe, text painter, either that class is all external calls or it calls other things that are external calls. But pretty quickly, you can make your way to this place where, oh, there's no more dark code here. What happened? 
Well, it's going out into, into the world of C code that's included in the engine. That's the engine boundary. Now, that might then beg the question, well, but wait a second. If you're writing Java code for the Android embedder and someone's writing Objective-C for, uh, for the iOS embedding, how does that work? I guess I can't actually speak for the uh, iOS side with confidence, but on the Android side, what I did is I would call out to C code as well. So every like pointer event that comes in from the Android UI surface gets sent into the C code. So the Java stuff sends information down into C, and then that information gets bubbled up from C into Dart. And then stuff happens in Dart that goes down into C, and then C bubbles that up into Java. So that down and up kind of loop is how information goes between. Now, that might be a bit different for languages that automatically support C. For example, Objective-C is a superset of C. It can include C code. So you might find it might be blurrier where that line is on iOS. Same thing with Windows. Win like C I don't know how C-sharp interops with C or if it does or not, but maybe it's blurrier there. Maybe there's C code sitting right in the middle of the .NET code. But from Java, which absolutely does not support inline C code, you have to go through JNI, the, the Java native interface or whatever that's called. So Java to JNI to C, C to JNI to Java. That's the bridge across the two. And that's how the Android embedding does its job. Now, is it actually performant, though? Because I can imagine going back and forth, that's got to be quite a bit of, of latency there, no? Well, every single Android app running Flutter that you've ever used does that. So you tell me, is it performant enough or not? Seems to be, but can't help but think about it in my head and that kind of all that translation could be pretty tricky. I do remember like watching a video and they specifically said they actually ripped out a bunch of C and actually poured it over to Dart because they wanted to get closer to the native platform and they actually made more sense. It was actually much better for them to kind of write more and more Dart other than to write C and C++. Yeah, I don't know the performance uh, reasons for that, but I'm a huge fan of writing more and more Dart. Like I said, I can't, I can't read C. My brain just turns off. It's like I have a dyslexia specifically for the C-based languages. Um, so I, I would like text painting. I'm, I'm working on Super Editor, and I guess we've, we've alluded to Super Editor a few times. So let me say for the audience that Super Editor is a rich text editing package built for Flutter. It's not a specific editor. It's the tools that you need to build your own editor of any kind. So it's all of this text measurement, text layout stuff that I'm dealing with and document layout. Well, down far enough in the, in the area of Flutter is a text painter. Now, it, it happens that actually it calls into Skia, I think. And so we can't really get any deeper than that. But it would have been more convenient for me if that code was dark code. Because I can read dark code and I can copy and manipulate dark code. If you just call out to Skia, this massive C package... That's the boundary where I, I can't do any more work. I can't really go past that. You've blocked me out of the implementation. So it's not going to happen. But if the, all that text layout stuff were actually in Dart, that would be awesome for me. I would love that to be the case. Just in reality, there are certain pieces of Flutter that are going to always or most likely will always remain on the C side because they're part of a different ecosystem. Like Skia is not just for Flutter. Skia is for Chrome. Skia is for Android. Skia is used in all sorts of other things. And that Skia also implements really tough stuff. That's compositing. That's GPU manipulation. That's really serious code. We're not going to re-implement that stuff in Dart, even if we could. 
Um, but anything that could go into dark, I'm a big fan moving and in, moving into dark. Yeah. Yeah. I think that makes sense, especially if you've been working with dark. Um, okay. So you're working with the Flutter team, working on the embedder. And then, um, how about after you left Google? Cause I, I'm sure you left straight from Google. You left Google when you're still on the Flutter team. So what have you been doing since then? So I've been doing a combination of things. Uh, I've worked on a handful of apps for different companies. I've done corporate training. So I worked with Very Good Ventures. So Very Good Vent- I mentioned Block earlier. Felix and Jorge are the names that's attached to the Flutter Block package. They work for Very Good Ventures. Very Good Ventures makes heavy use of blocks. I, I partnered with Very Good Ventures back in 2020, and we did a few different corporate trainings for a handful of companies. Um, I also I have a, a YouTube channel where I spent most of my recent time on my YouTube channel showing how I'm porting processing over to Flutter, but I also have what I call widget workshops on there where I take some interesting widget and I code it from scratch. I also have, uh, I did a Flutter challenge on there where I, I create a spring-based simulation in the UI. Uh, so I do education on that channel. I offer kind of per-hour consulting services. So if somebody wants to get my input on something they're working on, they can book an hour of my time. I've done a bit of that. Uh, obviously, I've worked on Super Editor, which was a is a paying job, um, but it's kind of on the side from whatever my primary app development happens to be at the moment. And right now, the my primary engagement is with a mortgage company where I'm helping them build a handful of web products using Flutter. So I'm kind of spanning the gamut here from education, consulting, contract development, open source development. And this year, I'm really hoping to bring the, again, the, the professional open source work up to a whole new level with Flutter Bounty Hunters. Uh, so it's interesting you're talking about Flutter Web, right? I don't hear a lot of people using it straight for web. So this is a web-only project you're working on with uh, that mortgage company, right? Yeah, that's right. They initially had a product that spanned web and mobile, which is why they originally adopted Flutter. And uh, they brought me in at a time where that was still the case. But then the direction of the business changed so that they, there was really no point in maintaining the mobile product. They wanted to create some new web products, didn't need mobile, but they already had a fair amount of code in Dart and they already had me on staff as a Flutter developer. And so we went with Flutter for web. And this is a really important point for people to understand the business value of Flutter. It's not just the cool nature of portability. If, if that company had switched to, let's just say, traditional web technologies, or if they had chosen to go with React.js or something, well, they would have had to rewrite all that dark code into JavaScript, and they would have had to get rid of me and hire somebody who specializes in that area. That's real cost. I mean, I would guess that that company easily saved 50 grand or more by simply being able to reuse Flutter for their new product line, even though it's web only. And this is why I give the Flutter organization flack when they go around talking about, oh, well, we'll support this part of web, but not that part of web. There are tens of thousands and sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars on the line for companies. And Flutter would sure look a lot better if they were always in a position to save $100,000 rather than be a part of costing $100,000. Before the show, you talked a little bit more about um, there was some things you wanted to talk about uh, based on the interview I did with Miriam, right? When it comes to Flutter web, can you talk more about what that is exactly? Because I don't think you talked in here what that is. Yeah, I was trying to remember the exact wording, but there was, and 
to be clear, no issue with Miriam. She's wonderful and doing a great job. And I'm sure that what she was discussing with you was the the official statement about Flutter for Web from the Flutter organization. But there was some, I forget, again, I forget the exact wording, but there was some kind of rationale as to why Flutter is intended for highly interactive experiences and not static experiences. Here's the thing. If the user is touching the screen a lot and causing a lot of changes, that is only more difficult on the rendering system than if the user isn't touching anything. So the rationale that Flutter is good at creating something that's constantly changing, that that Flutter can do that really well, but Flutter is not good at just rendering one frame. This this fails the smell test. This is now there may be more to that explanation, but that's how it sounded when it was explained and it doesn't make any sense. If you can render 60 frames per second, you can render one frame, right? So that there's something going wrong with that rationale. And my personal opinion is that the Flutter organization is in a position where, as we discussed earlier, they don't have the labor and the funding to solve every problem on every platform. But they also don't want to come out and say, oh, sorry, we don't have the money for that. And so I think instead they are trying to pretend that there is this natural boundary on the web between things Flutter should be good at and things Flutter should be bad at, and that's a natural line, and we're doing the good stuff and not the bad stuff. I don't think that line is real. I think Flutter can do anything it wants to do on web. They just have to decide that it's a priority. And so I grant that maybe they don't have the people, the time, the money. But please don't tell me that Flutter is awesome at 60 frames per second, but it's not good enough to handle one frame per second. That it's awesome at rent. So it, I did a video on this topic, but don't tell me that I can create a 2D vector graphics animation suite with Flutter, but I can't render CNN's homepage. This rationality doesn't pass the smell test. And for those who don't understand the underlying technical reasons for why this is true right now, they're going to hear that. And they're like, what are you talking about? It doesn't make any Unless, unless you know exactly why that's the case, it doesn't make any sense to you. And so we're risking harming public messaging about Flutter. We're risking Flutter adoption when people keep trying to come out and pretend this line between these two experiences means something. All it means to me is that Flutter hasn't gotten around to solving those problems yet. They are solvable. When and if Flutter prioritizes them, they, can, they will be solved. Right now, they don't have the time and money. That's fine. I would rather they just say, hey, we don't have the time and money. At least we're on the same page at that point. Okay. Uh, thinking back, I th what I understood were big issues were, of course, the SEO, right? You have to have text out there and, and, and the semantic and this kind of stuff. I think that was one of the things. Uh, so to that point in particular, yeah, to that point, well, there, there are two major things. Well... So my point a minute ago was that act, the explanation, at least as it was stated to you, was about what Flutter was actually doing. Like literally it was being described as we're for really interactive apps, not static apps. So that was just, that was just a poor a way to characterize it. But two things that are very real, you mentioned SEO, but there's also load time. Why do you want a longer load time when you could just send an HTML document and be done with it? Those are real things to talk about. My viewpoint on SEO is that it has nothing to do with Flutter. Yes, your web page needs SEO, 
but that's a server responsibility. Your server serves content. If a human goes to your web page, you serve Flutter. If a robot goes to your web page, you serve HTML with marked up text so that you can be indexed. Like right now on my web pages, I take an incoming HTTP request. If it is one of the search engine robots, I give it back an HTML page with just simple information, headers, paragraphs, links. If it's not a search robot, I return a Flutter experience, a Flutter index.html page. So I, I get SEO just fine. Now people will argue, oh, that's more work. Okay, well, that's a different issue. The question of whether or not you can do it or where it belongs, that's one thing. Making it really simple and quick is something else. We can solve each of those problems independently. So Flutter doesn't prevent SEO at all because SEO is a server-side concern, not a UI toolkit concern. As for the download size, that is a real problem. I agree it's a problem. For me, because I'm on a mission to push Flutter as hard as I can, I don't care. I'm still going to serve you a Flutter experience, but I agree that for general adoption, that is something that would need to be solved for us to go around and say the entire world should use Flutter for documents on the web. I think the the download experience is definitely a big one. I mean, if you're serving an area that doesn't have very good interconnection, that's a problem. Uh, If you have a single frame experience, I'd much rather use something like Flutter to build out that single page experience, that HTML experience, and then kick it out. And then it's a static file, right? If we could do something like that, that sounds actually quite interesting. But I think the issue is that, you know, when you're making Flutter app, like let's just, I mean, maybe that's not the correct way to say it, but when you're making a Flutter app and you want to be able to render mobile and all these other things, like you just cannot have that experience, right? If there's a serif, if there's some kind of thing that you could say, okay, I'll design with Flutter, but I want a single static frame, like you just said, that is fine. But I think that's difficult to to reach out to people because you have to put a lot of constraints onto people, right? Because with Flutter, I mean, it's all about experiences. You click a button, you mouse over it, it does something. There's an interaction. But if it's a single frame, that is like, how would you handle that, right? Because that's just not the way Flutter works. So I'm not sure what you mean by handle it, but in terms of value, let's connect this back to Super Editor for a moment. Over the, so when I started working on Super Editor, I had no idea how Flutter did anything with text, to be honest with you. I hadn't even really dug into all the things that a text editing controller could do. That's how little information I was operating on. And over the last year, I've learned all sorts of things about what it means to lay out text and measure text and put a carrot in text and draw selection boxes and have drag handles. I've learned a lot about text layouts. In a world where Flutter can go anywhere and everywhere, that exact same understanding of text layout, you can utilize that knowledge everywhere. But if you tell me that I have to go to JavaScript and a document object model and a box layout on the web just because I want a web page, even though I understand the concepts, I lose all the utility, all of that expertise that I have in in measuring and laying out text and documents. It no longer applies in the world of JavaScript because now I need to learn the JavaScript version. And in fact, it gets quite a bit more complicated because the browser, the browser isn't just a coding environment. Form elements in the browser have special agreed upon meanings, right? 
the World Wide Web Consortium says, if you are a browser, thou shalt support a single line text field, a text area, and a handful of these other form things. And so you are at some level constrained by what those form elements do. Whereas in Flutter, you paint every pixel. So you can you don't have to use form elements in Flutter. You don't need to understand the DOM or box layout or JavaScript. So my point on this issue is that I want that utility. I understand we have problems to solve. And as you pointed out, this is a very real problem. It's a problem that you might be serving a web page to a cell phone in the middle of Africa with very poor coverage or the middle of India. That is a problem. But in terms of goals, because really what we're talking about are goals. You and I agree we're not there yet. The question is whether the Flutter org intends to ever get there. I'm saying I want us to try to get there because I want to take the same text layout and document layout knowledge and ability that I have on Mac OS, and I want to be able to apply it on the web. I don't want to be told that I have to jettison my entire tech stack just because CNN's homepage has some weird difference that I don't care about, you know? Okay, I, I see what you're saying. Um, I think I've already used quite a bit of your time. Like, I can see us going on and on, like never having an end. Um, maybe we should have another session soon to kind of talk more about some deeper, about some more topics. I, if you're interested, I think it could be quite interesting. Yeah, sure. I'll say I, I, so I did put Super Editor in my tweet. So while we're here, is there anything you'd like to ask me about Super Editor, just in case anybody dropped by for that topic and we kind of, we never really got there? Yeah, I don't see anybody asking questions about Super Editor. They're mostly talking about there's some lagging on the live stream, but that's just bound to happen because we have different streams going on. Uh, but I let them know that there's, we're going to probably release this video, I think should be by this Wednesday. So it could be a chance for people to turn in for part two, uh, if we have a part two that, you know, maybe they want to come on. Sure. Um, yeah. So, and I think most of the questions I usually end with has already been asked. Uh, is there anything you wanted to say before we sign off? Well, I'd love to plug some stuff if I can. Uh, so obviously, if anybody wants to learn from me, I have a YouTube channel. It's Super Declarative on YouTube. I'm on Twitter at Super Declarative. It's spelled a little different because I didn't have enough characters on Twitter. So it's S-U-P-R Declarative on Twitter. Also, if any of you watching this are a part of a company that needs a particular tool, I'd love for you to reach out to me and the Flutter Bounty Hunters. So you can go to flutterbountyhunters.com. You can also go to at Flutter Bounties on Twitter. We'd love to hear about your needs. And also, if you are uh, an expert Flutter developer and would like to become a Flutter Bounty Hunter, please feel free to reach out at those same places. And uh, how are you judging people if they're expert or not? I think that's something that people should maybe be aware of because... I'm still, I'm yeah, still figuring that out. Interesting to hear. But uh, I, uh, one interesting data point in this questionnaire that I made available to anyone who's interested, one of the questions on there is, do you know how to build Flutter apps without using state management tools? Not, not preference, but like technically, could you do it if you didn't have the tools? And I think two-thirds or three-quarters said no. They literally don't know how they would build apps without those tools. I, I understand that situation. Um, you're probably not a Flutter expert if that's the case, because it indicates that there, you're missing a lot of the nature about how Flutter works, which is why you are forced to use these other tools. You're trying to bypass Flutter knowledge with uh, package knowledge. Um, but, I, but I'm still trying to figure out how to really gauge that. At the end of the day, what will probably happen is there will be a filter where I will get some number of people that I have some reason to believe 
are expert or pretty good. And I will put them on a ticket or a task and I will see how does it go. Do they know how to file an issue effectively? Do they know how to write code effectively? Do they have comments in their code? Do they write the tests in the pull request? Do they explain their solution? Are they indicating that they are engaged with, a, with, with building a healthy project? And if they're just too far off the mark, then I'll just say thanks, but no thanks. We're not going to be able to work through that. Okay. It's good to know. I always like to, like if I didn't test it, I always like to know kind of like, where should I focus on? Because sometimes you're just like, we just want to see what is your thinking. Okay. Then I don't need to worry too much about proper methods I'm going to be using. Or is it that we want to judge based on, you know, how well you actually know this language or framework. Okay. Then I have to be more specific and think about which things I want to use that best solve the issue at hand. Right. So it's always you, good you to kind of need that. all of it. I mean, so first of all, there won't ever be any coding interviews. I'm not going to do that stuff. I think it, it just doesn't tend to work. Um, but at the end of the day, if you're going to work on a project for a paying client, you have to have all the things. Uh, you have to solve the problem. You have to have well-commented code so other developers can understand what you did. You have to decompose the problem so that other developers can fix bugs, maintain it, extend it. You need to write tests so that we know that it works. You may need to write some documentation if it's a complicated enough problem. These are just expectations of a real and serious project. And so anybody who consistently fails to deliver any of those pieces, the question becomes, how can that person continue to be a part of the project? It's one thing to make mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes and you can get better. But if, if you just cannot show up and deliver on the things that a real project needs, then the reality is, is that's just not a good fit for you. Okay, makes sense. All right, um, I'm going to close this this session. Uh, we can talk after this if you want to, you know, do something else. Uh, but yeah, I'd love to have you back. I'd love to hear back from you and and hear your knowledge about Flutter because yeah, it takes time and everything and effort to really get into it. And I'm speaking to you, I can see you have a lot of that, both because you you love the framework and also because you are already working with it day in day out for your day in day out job at Google. So again, thanks for your time. And uh, I actually may start to, to uh, subscribe to your videos now right. <laughs> after talking with you. So thanks again. Hey, well, th thanks for having me.